we just praise you. God, we thank you that you gave your one and only Son to atone for our sins, to be the perfect sacrificial lamb, unblemished, spotless. A mediator so that we can have a relationship with you that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. And we thank you that we are your people. We thank you that you are our God. And Lord, we just commit the rest of this service to you and ask that you would have your way with us. Please uh, just infect, impact our hearts to understand your greatness, the magnitude of your mercy and your grace. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Dan Hardy, and I see a few new faces in here, and I want to welcome you. I'll just tell you a little bit about Windsor Community Church, who we are, what we do on Sunday morning. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see people grow in the love and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Typically what goes on in Sunday morning is we teach through a book of the Bible. We finished up First Peter. Pastor Dean ended three weeks ago. And then uh, the last two weeks, we dove into the mission of Windsor Community Church, the core values, and then our uh, five-year vision as we see the Lord taking us the next five years. I don't do all the teaching. The teaching is uh, split here between Dean and Chris and I. Our model is one of plurality. We feel like God's word is very clear that it is best to have a plurality of men that are committed to the Lord and committed to the body. And we are committed to both. We love you guys, and thank you for the privilege of being your pastors by God's grace. If you look in your bulletin, you're probably going, what's up? We were, what's up? We were going to dive into Genesis today. In reality, we're not going to dive into Genesis first chapter, first verse, until two weeks from today. What we're going to do today is we are going to take a 40,000-foot view of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to take a look at God's plan for redeeming man. Now, we can't do that in one Sunday effectively. So my desire is is that, that you'll come out of this message this morning more in love with Jesus and a greater desire than you ever had to study the Old Testament. Next Sunday, we're going to take a 20,000 foot. We're going to drop down from 40,000 feet to 20,000 feet, and we're going to look at Genesis. We're going to do an overview of the storyline of Genesis. Then the week after that, we'll start chapter 1, verse 1. Sounds good? Now, as I was preparing for this, and I've got to tell you, hopefully there's no false humility here, that I have been so far out of my comfort zone, just even in preparing, not only for today, but for the coming weeks, because honestly, I am like, I think, many of you where I've spent a smaller amount of time in the Old Testament than I have had the New Testament. I mean, I'd say, you know, maybe 80-20. I mean, a significant uh, discrepancy. But as I was preparing this week, I came across the whole Bible in 50 words. You curious? All right. God made, Adam ate, Noah built, Abraham split, Joseph ruled. Jacob fooled, Bush talked, Moses balked. 
Pharaoh plagued, people walked, sea divided, tablets guided, land entered, Saul freaked, David peaked, prophets warned, Jesus born. God walked, love talked, anger crucified, hope died, Jesus rose, spirit flamed, word spread, God remained. Now, I was going to sing it, but I wanted, I wanted somebody to clap. Yeah, thank you. This obviously tells us nothing about the storyline and the outline of, of the Bible. It, it, it tells us nothing about God's plan to redeem man. And God had a plan from day one. And I am so excited about the truths that the Lord has allowed me to just to, to learn this past week. And I just pray that somehow, um, it'll, that by God's Spirit, it'll encourage you as well. You know, it's important that we understand the Bible as one cohesive, comprehensive story of God's plan to redeem mankind. It's not just individual stories of courage and example. You know, many of us have used the Old Testament for that and only that. And it is that. It's, it, it's great examples of courage and the way to live our lives. But very few of us have looked at the Old Testament and tied it in the New Testament and seen it as one comprehensive story of God's plan to redeem mankind. The plans of the original New York City planners are hidden when walking down the streets of New York with building tops overhead. But they suddenly become visible as an aerial picture lets us rise up and look down on the whole city. An aerial photograph provides a sense of perspective and interrelatedness. And we see what planners envisioned in their minds and blueprints when we can't see it when we're walking through the streets. And I dare say that when we're walking through the New Testament only, we can't see God's overall plan for His Word and and the cohesive story that He's put together for us and for His glory. Clearly, the sense of the whole is important for understanding and planning. Today, we're going to take an above-the-Bible look. We're going to look at God's Word from 40,000 feet. We're going to look at the entire Bible at once. As I mentioned, this is a tall order. This is a tall order, and I promise you we'll be out of here by one. Is that okay, Ramona? John? No, it's not. As we study Genesis and other other Old Testament books, I want you to look for Christ. Look for Christ. I mean, I think if, if you've been walking as a Christian for a while, you know that Christ is in the Old Testament. But very few of us have dug deep to see Christ in the Old Testament. And He is there from day one. Christ is in the Old Testament. And for those of you that are young believers or maybe who have not yet bent your knee to Christ, you're going to be blown away. Because from the time that Adam and Eve were created, and after their first sin, God had a plan to redeem mankind. And it was through the person of Jesus Christ. How does the Bible as a whole fit together? The events recorded in the Bible took place over a span of thousands of years with many different authors in different cultural settings. Let me pray. God, I ask you, the Holy Spirit, that you would give me discernment wisdom. God, that you would edit anything at all that's on these pages that is in my mind that I've thought about saying. Um, And Lord, would you be honored and glorified this morning? And Lord, I pray that this would not be a rote exercise in Bible history. But Lord, that this, today, the scriptures that we're going to look at would spur us on. Would spur us on to love and good deeds. To want to go deeper in pursuing intimacy with you. So God, please have your way with us this morning. Change us, mold us. Do whatever you please with us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You know, there are uh, certain unifying or common threads that, that go between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And the Lord has just he's shown me six of those this last week. And I don't know, there might be a hundred of them. But these are six of them that are unifying or common threads in the Old and New Testament. First one is divine authorship. Divine authorship. Both the Old and the New Testament are inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture... Now, I'm going to keep mentioning this over and over again, and some of you are going to go, well, duh. And others are going to go, wow, cool. That when Paul is talking, and he is talking about Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. Because there is no written Scripture when these guys are writing the New Testament Scripture. So 2 Timothy 3.16a, first part of 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture, old and new. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second common thread. All of Scripture is good for instruction. I think a lot of us know that up here, but we don't practice it. I mean, after all, we've got the new covenant. We've got, we've got all the good stuff. You know, we've, we've, we've got the dessert. The events recorded in the Bible are there because God wanted them recorded. And he had them recorded with his people, you and I in mind, for our benefit, for our instruction. 1 Timothy 3.16 and 17. We just read all scripture is breathed out by God. And then it says, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good word. The Old Testament is important. Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in former days, in the Old Testament, whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, Old Testament, that we might have hope. And you know what that hope is? That hope is Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament talks about that hope time and time again. Third common thread, atonement or at-one-ment. At-one-ment. Atonement literally is, it means bringing together Two warring parties, reconciliation of two warring parties at one meant. Okay? Old Testament animal sacrifices taught that sin needed to be atoned for, but it never forgave them for their sins. It never made them right with God. Salvation and forgiveness would be costly. The Old Testament talks about that. The only one who could atone or pay for their sins in the Old Testament in our sins is the pure spotless lamb. And that's Jesus himself, the Messiah of the Old Testament. Would you turn to Hebrews 10 with me for a minute? I don't have a page number. I'm sorry if you have a pew Bible. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 10. We're going to slow it down for a minute and take a look at this. It says this, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. They did those sacrifices, the bulls and the goats, every year. Every year. And what the author of Hebrews says right here is it didn't do any good. 
It could never make them perfect or holy. It says, because otherwise, verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if they were forgiven of their sins, why would they keep doing it year in and year out? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Where is it written that Jesus came to do the Father's will? It's all over the Old Testament. Verse 8, When he, Jesus, said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified, which is the state of being made holy, sanctification. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And what I want you to see here this morning, we're going to see it all throughout Genesis, is that there is grace and people are saved by grace, through faith in the Old Testament. And that these sacrifices were just to point them to the Savior and to remind them of their sin. The fourth thread or or a commonality between the Old Testament and the New. The gospel message has never changed. In Luke 24, 44 through 48, let's take a look at that. This is a chapter that a dear sister in this body asked me to look at six, nine months ago. And I'm like, okay, you know, I kind of, I was kind of felt a little bit of a rebuke, going, all right, dummy, check this out. But when I reflected upon this sister's heart, and when I read this passage, I really believe that it's part of the reason why we're going into Genesis right now. It is a powerful, powerful passage, Luke 24, 44 through 48. And what's going on here is Jesus had risen from the dead. And he, after walking the road to Emmaus and freaking out a couple of guys, he goes and meets with the 11 apostles. And the 11 apostles are, are, you know, they're not, they really can't believe their eyes that he's there. And so Jesus responds to the 11 disciples after he's risen from the dead. And he says this in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms... Translation, Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Which scriptures? The Old Testament. And he said to them, Thus it is written, where? In the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What did Jesus just do? He just shared the gospel, basically, with his apostles using the Old Testament. Do you realize that people today can get saved by reading nothing more than the Old Testament? If they didn't have a New Testament, 
If all they had were the, were the 39 books of the Old Testament, God can open their eyes because it's all about Christ. I know some of you are going, well, duh. Others of you are going, cool. Number five, common thread between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Saved by faith. I've mentioned this a couple times already. People have been saved by faith and not by works and not by their own sacrifice from day one. Genesis 15, 6, we all know the story. It's when Abraham was not trusting the Lord before and he had a son with Hagar. And then God said, hey, I'm going to give you a son of your own with you and Sarah. And Abraham believed him. And here's what it said when he believed God in Genesis 15, 6. And it said, he believed the Lord and he, God, counted it unto him as righteousness. Abraham, in the 15th chapter of Genesis, somewhere at the beginning of time, was saved by faith, not by works. I think a lot of us think that he was saved when he was obedient to sacrifice Isaac. But he was saved because he believed and trusted in the person of Christ. Number six, common thread, and the last one we're going to go over today, is repentance is necessary for salvation. And I'm going to probably go off on a couple of tangents here, but first I'll stick to my script. Jeremiah 36.3. It says this, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Repentance is not only a New Testament concept and principle and truth, it's an Old Testament truth. And repentance literally means that we're we're walking our own way, doing our own thing, and we take a U-turn, a 180, to follow God. And I, here's where I'm going to just get on the horse just for a minute. There is a, a message that I've listened to. If any of you go to my Facebook, I posted it there. It's by a guy by the name of Paul Washer. And I'd never heard of Paul Washer. My son Joey turned me on to him. And uh, he's teaching out of First, First John, Second John, Third John. And he's talking. the name of the message is called Examine Yourself. And I'll tell you, the church in America today is that it, we have an easy believism. We tell our kids, we tell each other that all you need to do is just ask Jesus into your heart. And that's not what it entails. It entails to believe who Jesus said that he is. And that we are sinners that deserve hell. And that the only way to the Father is through Jesus. And to believe that he died for us, and that he was the only perfect sacrifice that could forgive our sins and the believe that he rose from the dead if you remember the parable from the rich young ruler he said that I believed all these things and Jesus said sell everything and follow me now that's not a requirement for salvation to sell everything and follow him but he demands everything of us and being a Christian is not easy believism and parents I would encourage you to not tell your children that they're Christians that's between them and the Lord Encourage them in their Christian walk if they profess to be Christ. But that's be, you, don't, you don't know. I don't know. And it requires repentance. It requires repentance. And what I'm, not ta- I'm not talking about a works-based salvation here. Don't get me wrong. Because we are saved by God's amazing grace. And we've done none of it on our own. But repentance is missing in the church today. It says in Matthew, these Pharisees come... 
to Jesus and say, we've done miracles in your name, we've prophesied in your name, we've done all these good things. And Jesus says this, the scariest verse in the Bible, depart from me, I never knew you, you wicked men of lawlessness. And so I am quite confident that the church in America today is filled with people that have the language down, that are going through the motions. And parents, just encourage your kids to examine themselves. Not in a condemning way, but in a way that you care about their soul more than you care about their health. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You know, even John 3.16, where it says believe there, if you look at that root word of believe, there's an element of repentance in it. It's not an easy believism. God gave us the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, so that we can know Him and His plan for mankind. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, One of the rewards of reading the Old Testament regularly is that you keep on discovering more and more what a tissue of quotations from it the New Testament is. Let me read that again. One of the rewards of reading the Old Testament regularly is that you keep on discovering more and more what a tissue of quotations from it the New Testament is. The New Testament is made up of the Old Testament. So there are six unifying or common threads between the New Testament and the Old Testament that we identified. Divine authorship, it's all for instruction. Atonement, that Christ is the only one who can atone for our sins. The gospel message, saved by faith from the beginning until the end. And that God demands repentance. Not an easy believism. You know, most Christians today and most churches spend little time reading and preaching from the Old Testament. We've been around since 2001. This is the first time that we've taught from the Old Testament. And it's about stinking time, isn't it? And uh, we're, we're excited, we're nervous, we're scared, we're dependent, and we're expectant. You know, many of us have mined the Old Testament for good stories about Joseph, Daniel, David, Moses. And we've looked for examples of bravery and devotion for our children to emulate. And that's good. That's good, but let's not stop there. There's an overarching storyline. There's an overarching story of God's redemption and His love for mankind. I dare say that we are afraid of the Old Testament and that we discount it as non-essential and unimportant. Somehow we think that by reading it, we'll automatically be thrown into some type of legalistic, works-oriented faith. I know I've kind of thought that at times, you know. That it's all legalism. There are some cold legalists fighting for the Bible out there and to live by the Bible's rules. But they don't love the Lord described in his pages. And that's the difference between legalism and a follower of Jesus. Is that we're not about following rules. We're about loving Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we're going to be obedient. The entire Bible is Christ-centric. In other words, it shows us Christ so that we can look to Him as the focus of our hopes and the center of our satisfaction. Nothing satisfies like a relationship with Jesus. Nothing satisfies. Many of us are finding that the dreams and the hopes that we had with wealth and with retirement, they're not coming to fruition. Many of us thought that cancer was for another family. Many of us thought that divorce was something that happened to other people's parents. 
But I'm here to tell you and remind you that the only satisfaction, the only hope that this world has to offer, and it's the same satisfaction, the same hope, is from when the Bible first start, was first written in Genesis 1, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. It is correct in saying that the Bible, new and old, offers a story. It's a true story of the whole world. Therefore, faith in Jesus should be the means through which a Christian seeks to understand all of life and the whole of history. And the whole of history is revealed in God's Word. Even future history. We know what's coming. We know where we're headed. We know the end of the story. There's no surprises. It's not like, you know, somebody tells you about a movie and, and they won't tell you the ending because it's going to ruin it. We know the ending. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but we know what the ending is. What exactly is the biblical story and how do we grasp it? Let's take a quick look at the storyline or outline of the Bible. The title of the sermon is Promises Made and Promises Kept. And the Old Testament is really about promises made to God's chosen people. God makes promises to His people in the Old Testament and He keeps His promises in the New Testament. Within the Old Testament, we will consider first a particular history. It's a historical bunch of books. There's 39 books. Genesis 1-1 starts out like a story. In the beginning. That is where the storyline of this particular history started. The Bible is not only a book of wise religious counsel and theological propositions, though it certainly has both. It's a real story set in history. It's a story of the Old Testament, and it's amazing. It's amazing. This storyline is not recounted in one book. It's recounted in 39 unified, smaller books. So the Old Testament as a whole provides one clear and concrete revelation of God to His people, given through a variety of authors and genres over a long stretch of time. The first five books are called the Pentateuch. It's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the Pentateuch, Penta, literally means five. Tuch is law. And it really is where you've got to start there. Genesis is so foundational to understanding the Bible and who Christ is. The Pentateuch is not simply the beginning of the Bible. It's also the foundation of the Bible. It serves to orient the reader for reading the rest of the Bible storyline. The next 12 books is Joshua through Esther. And these are the historical books. After that are the five poetic or wisdom books, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. These are the wisdom or poetic books. And it it talks about the stories of these folks during this history. It describes individual experience. The next 17 books, Isaiah through Malachi, are the prophets. And the first five of those, Isaiah through Daniel, are the major prophets. And major does not mean more important. Major just means that they're bigger. And then the next 12 are the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi, the Italian prophet. These books of prophecy provide God's own commentary on history. They are, as it were, God's authoritative editorials. Prophecy, what prophecy is, it's God's, it's God Himself speaking about what's to come in the future. Those 17 books are amazing. The entire storyline and history of the Old Testament points toward the coming Messiah. A couple of resources. If you are interested in learning more about the Old Testament and the whole Bible as a storyline, there's a book called 30 Days to Understand in Your Bible. Some of you have gone through it. It's by Max Anders. 
And it's just, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good read, and it is uh, really uh, foundational. Another book that uh, Brother Chris Schwitt gave me this past week that I've been able to skim through looks wonderful. It's called The Drama of Scripture, and it's by uh, Bartholomew and Goheen. What I found as I was wading through is for you more artsy types. <laughs> but it is, it is wonderful, the drama. The Old Testament presents us not only with the particular history of Israel, God's chosen people, it introduces us to God's passion for holiness. And God is, a, he is passionate about his own holiness. A lot of people associate the Old Testament with an angry God. This could not be further from the truth. We, don't we have this impression that God is an angry God in the Old Testament and He's not an angry God now? I mean, he's, he's as much of a loving God in the Old Testament as He is now. Some of us think that, that when God becomes angry in the Old Testament, that it's, it's, a, it's a whimsical tyranny that He's doing. But He is a loving God. However, He is committed to His own holy and glorious character. He is committed also to His covenant with His people. Sin is the culprit that stirs God's anger. Then and today, it robs him of the glory that he deserves and breaks the covenant that he has with his people. Let me pause for a second. If you are his, there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. If you are his, positionally, between God and you, he will never leave you. Relationally, we can, we can act in unrepentant sin, in rebellion, and cut the relationship off with God. The Bible makes it clear that ever since the fall of Adam into sin, sin and its consequences have been the pervasive problem of the human race. It's our sickness. It's our disease. It is a constant theme running through the Bible. Sin is rebellion against God, and it deserves death. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. We'll, we'll look at the second part of that in a little bit. God is holy, and no sinful human being can stand in the presence of God without dying. Well, take a look at Exodus 34 with me real quick. One of the books I read described this as the Old Testament riddle, and it is phenomenal. Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7. Actually, it's the end of verse 6, first part of verse 7. The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the Old Testament God. That's the same as the New Testament God. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's a loving God. But, who will by no means clear the guilty? It's a, it's a riddle. And not leave the guilty unpunished. How can that be? How can God forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin? How can He be gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? yet not leave the guilty unpunished. Two seemingly contradictory concepts. That brings us to the last thing that we need to understand about the Old Testament. 
and the God that reveals the promise of hope. Promise of hope. Our hope is not in history. My hope is, and my kids' hope is not in, in my lineage of the Hardys. And, and the, the great things the Hardy family has done. The history of the Old Testament proved to them, the Israelites, the people of the Old Testament, and it proves to us that we're moral and spiritual failures. The hope for mankind in Old Testament history was not in the sacrificial system. As the psalmist said in Psalm 40, verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. says the same thing in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. That means that there is only one way of salvation throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Only Christ can save us. It says in Acts 4, And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now the answer to the Old Testament riddle in Exodus 34, of course we know what it is. The answer is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, and I kind of hung this verse on the title of the message because it's an amazing verse to me. It says, For all the promises of God... All the promises of God, all the promises in the Old Testament, find their yes in Him, in Jesus. That is why it is through Him, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Can I hear an amen on that? For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Let's take a look at the promises kept, the message of the New Testament. The Old Testament makes promises about Christ, and the New Testament keeps those promises in Christ. Would Israel's Redeemer ever come? You know that's what they had to be thinking. Would He ever come? Number one, the promised Redeemer. The one who will fulfill the Old Testament promise is the very center of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. I'm hoping that somehow this is inspiring you and encouraging you to take a look at the entire Old Testament. That if you're spending 90% of your devotional time in the New Testament, take some time and look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11, 39-40 says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith... What's going on in chapter 11? This is the Hall of Faith, right? Where you just talked about, about all the great saints of history... And about their faith that they had. It goes down. And these are the last two verses in chapter 11. After he describes the hall of faith. All these great men and women. And all of these. Having gained approval through their faith. In other words. Gained approval of God. In other words. They became holy. God infused his righteousness into them. Because of their faith. They did not receive what was promised. They, did, they, did, they received salvation, but they, they didn't get to stick around and see the Savior and see the, the New Testament writings that describe the Savior because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And the bottom line to this here is, is that we are, we are a blessed generation. We've got the whole counsel of God's Word, Old and New Testament. We've got all kinds of great men and women that are... Bereans, where they're, they're tearing apart the word and mining out truths that reveal more of Jesus to us. Now, the New Testament is a collection of 27 books. And the first four books we know, of course, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are first-hand accounts 
of the Messiah's life in his 32 or 33 years walking the earth. They all argue that Jesus of Nazareth is a promised Messiah. He is the Christ. He is a promised one for whom God's people have been waiting. The Old Testament makes a promise about Christ, and the New Testament keeps that promise. Number two, the promised relationship, a new covenant people. That's us. We are God's covenant, new covenant people. Following the four Gospels, the next book is Acts, which focuses on the life and identity of Jesus Christ and the mission of the church, which is you and I, not only here at Windsor Community Church, but believers all over the world. Acts begins with Jesus ascending to heaven and then giving out His Spirit Pentecost. Over the ensuing chapters, His Spirit establishes the church as God's new society or as the, or His covenant people. It empowers us, His church, to grow and to do Christ's work. We are here, left on this earth, to fulfill the mission that Jesus started. We are the arms and the feet of Jesus. There are 22 letters that follow Acts describing what it means to live as God's specially covenanted people. Luke wrote Acts, Paul wrote the first 13 letters, and then there were eight letters after that that were written by James, Peter, John, and Jude, and then there's one unknown author that wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know who that is. As we read through all these letters, we find that the promises made by God in the Old Testament have been kept in God's new covenant people because of the cross. Last is the promised renewal in the book of Revelation, a new creation. What's the point of history? Why does life in the universe, you and I, why do we exist at all? Somebody once said that the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All history and all creation exists ultimately for God's glory. This is what we find at the conclusion of the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John writes that all creation will be taken into God's glory, into His presence. In Revelation, creation is refurbished, is refinished, is represented in a new heaven and a new earth. The holiness of God's people will finally be complete, and we will dwell together with Him. Really, Revelation presents the Garden of Eden. It's it's a Garden of Eden. It's perfect, only better. It's recreation. We will live forever in a heavenly and perfect city. A city that works not because of a stimulus plan, not because of good schools and and low taxes, but because God will abide with us forever. He will walk with us. We will walk with Him. In this heavenly city, God's full, unmediated presence is given to all His people. The whole world will become His temple. In Revelation 20, 1 through 4, the apostle John writes at the end of his life the following. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The full counsel of God's word, all 66 books, are one comprehensive cohesive story of God creating the universe and His plan to redeem mankind. 
It's all there. I put together a slide that was a good visual for me where God created the universe. And the history that he provided in the Old Testament and the history that he's given us now and his passion for holiness. God has a passion for holiness. And his promise for hope are all in the person of Jesus Christ. That everything in the Old Testament points towards the cross. Then in the New Testament, we get our promised Redeemer. And the promised relationship, the covenant relationship with Him. And it all points to a new creation where we'll be with Him forever. Where there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more sickness. Let's pray. God, we praise You. Lord, we thank You for the full counsel of Your Word. Lord, I'm kind of numb. Kind of feel stretched out of shape like drinking from a fire hose. God, I uh, thank You for Your Word and for Your Holy Spirit that gives us understanding of Your Word. I thank you that through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. God, I thank you for the truths that you've shown me this past couple of weeks that, that you really are consistent. That you are the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That you're a God who is abounding in loving kindness. You're forgiving Yet you're a God that will not leave the guilty unpunished. And God, we thank you that Jesus took our guilt upon himself. And he took the full wrath, your wrath, the wrath of a holy God that we deserved, and bore it upon himself. So that now we are free from the power of sin. We are free from the guilt of sin. And that we have been reconciled into a relationship with you, Father. A Father who loves us. A Father who is still holy and then lovingly disciplines us when we rebel against you. We thank you that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. God, I pray if there's anybody here today that is yet to bend their knee, that maybe they have got the head knowledge, but they have yet to put their true faith and trust in you to acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, would this be the day that they would bend their knee to you? We love you. And God's people said, Amen.